Well, let's open God's Word this morning to 2 Chronicles chapter 7. 2 Chronicles chapter 7, and we're going to look at verses 12 through 14 for our text this morning. 2 Chronicles 7, verses 12 through 14, and the title of the message today is, O Say Can You See? And this is going to be part one of a two-part message. You know, it goes without saying, I think, that Christian people, people who are truly born again, are grieved by what we see taking place in our nation right now. And we mourn. Uh, There's something deep within us that mourns as we see the uh, rejection of God, the rejection of Jesus Christ, as we see uh, so many other things. And that's very biblical to feel that way as you see things going on in a culture or in a society or in a nation. uh, Christian people, people who have the Spirit of God dwelling in them, uh, should feel that way. It's very biblical. The prophets felt that way. You can read through the prophets and as they prophesied coming judgment, uh, their hearts were broken. There was great mourning, great uh, sorrow. Uh, Jeremiah was called the weeping prophet. Habakkuk was uh, just a broken man over what was about to take place uh, in his day. Jesus wept over Jerusalem. He didn't just look at Jerusalem and say, well, I know in in the sovereignty of God what's going to happen, and it's going to happen anyway no matter what. No, he looked at the city, and he looked at the people, and he looked at uh, what was taking place, their rejection of him ultimately as the Messiah. And he wept over Jerusalem. And there's something just not right with us if that's not our response. If you see the things that are going on in our day, in this nation, and you see what is taking place, if we're not grieving, if we're not mourning, something is is wrong. Steve Lawson said this a couple of weeks ago, and I just wanted to read to you a quote from him. I know many of you know Steve Lawson and have a great deal of respect for his preaching and for his ministry. But here's how he summarized some of this. He said, there's a sense in which things that shocked us 10 years ago and five years ago do not have the same impact upon us. And there's a subtlety, like the frog in the kettle with the boiling water. After a while, it doesn't even know that the water's boiling. After a while, we don't realize just how wicked our country is, just how wicked our government is. Just how wicked all these various movements are that dominate the cable news circuit. We need to be kept in a place where we mourn like Jeremiah and like Jesus who wept over Jerusalem and not become calloused and hardened and not still weep over sin, but most of all over our own sin. That was just a couple of weeks ago as he was teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, and the particular Beatitude that says, Blessed are those who mourn. And so this morning what I want to do in this message is just really today, all we're going to have time to do really is just an introduction. And then next week I intend to preach the main heart of the message. So if you're if you're not back next week, you're going to miss the, the, the main heart of the message. But there's a lot that we need to take, a, take note of uh, here from our text this morning. And so let's read our text starting in verse 12 of Second Chronicles chapter 7. And it says, Then the Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said to him, I have heard your prayer 
and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. And when I shut up heaven and there is no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now the question that comes up immediately after reading this is, does this, does this passage apply in any way to the people of God in the United States of America? And I'm going to give you the answer to that right here at the beginning. Yes, it does. But it's not, maybe not in the way that we might first think. And I want to show you what I mean by that. Solomon had built the temple. Uh, David had wanted to build it. Uh, Solomon's father, but was not able to because he was a man of war and a man of bloodshed. But uh, God authorized Solomon to build it. And he, he built the temple, completed the building of it. And then they brought in the Ark of the Covenant and, and brought it into the temple. And in chapter 6, Solomon dedicates the temple. He, he got up on a platform and he stood at first with his hands raised. And then he, he knelt down before all of the people on his knees with his hands raised. And he prayed a great prayer of dedication. And I want you to look back in chapter 6 and verses 18 through 21. And see the, the great prayer that he prayed. The heart of the prayer is given to us in verses 18 through 21 of chapter 6. And here's what he says. Here's what he said in that prayer. He said, But will God indeed dwell with men on the earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple which I have built. Yet regard the prayer of your servant and his supplication. Uh, o Lord my God, and listen to the cry and the prayer which your servant is praying before you, that your eyes may be open toward this temple day and night, toward the place where you said you would put your name, that you may hear the prayer which your servant makes toward this place. And may you hear the supplications of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. Hear from heaven your dwelling place, and when you hear... Forgive, And that really summarizes the heart of this prayer of dedication that, uh, that Solomon prayed. And that phrase, hear from heaven, is found seven times here in chapter 6. Uh, let me just cite the verses. Verses 21, 23, 25, 30, 33, 35, and 39. Seven times he says, hear from heaven. And the idea is that God would hear the petitions of the people after they've sinned. And he would forgive their Sins as they repent and confess their sins to him. Now, there's seven occasions, or several occasions that are given here when this, when, when Solomon is requesting that this be done. First of all, if you just want to run through this with me, look in verse 22. First of all, if anyone sins, he just says, if anyone sins and they repent and come to you, will you hear from heaven and forgive? Verse 24, he says, if your people Israel are defeated in battle, and here he mentions that it's because of sin. They're defeated in battle because of their sinfulness. If they repent and turn to you, hear from heaven and forgive. If there's a drought in the land because of sin, if they turn from their sin and repent and come to you, hear from heaven and forgive their sin. 
Verse 28, when there is a famine, pestilence, blight, mildew, locusts, grasshoppers, or if enemies besiege us, and if there's a plague or sickness, again, because of sin, and they turn, if, I, if your people turn to you and call out to you for forgiveness and for cleansing, then hear from heaven and forgive. In verse 32, he says, if there's a foreigner praying in the temple, hear from heaven, hear his prayer. And again in verse 34, he says, when your people go out to battle and they pray as they go to battle, hear from heaven, hear their prayer. Now look in verses 36 through 39. I want to read all of these verses because it really gives us sort of in a capsule form what Solomon in this prayer of dedication is asking from God. And it it's, uh, sort of summarizes all that we've just talked about, starting in verse 36. He says, When they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you become angry with them and deliver them to the enemy, and they take them captive to a land far or near, yet when they come to themselves in the land where they were carried captive, and repent and make supplication to you in the land of their captivity, saying, We have sinned, we have done wrong. And have committed wickedness. And when they return to you with all their heart. And with all their soul. In the land of their captivity. Where they have been carried captive. And pray toward their land which you gave to their fathers. The city which you have chosen. And toward the temple which I have built for your name. Then hear from heaven. Your dwelling place. Their prayer. And their supplications. And maintain their cause. And forgive your people who have sinned against you. Solomon was a very wise man. He knew that people will sin. And he knew that when they do sin, they need a heavenly Father who will be receptive to them when they cry out to Him and that He would forgive their sin. And so when we come to our text today, verses 12 through 14 in chapter 7, actually what's happening here is that God is answering Solomon's prayer. That cry from Solomon's heart that God would be a merciful God and would hear His people when they cry out for forgiveness and that He would forgive their sins. And so that's, that's what God is doing here in these verses. He's answering Solomon's prayer. And I want to just read it again. Let's just read this again. Verses 12 through 14. It says, Then the Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said to him, I have heard your prayer. And have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up heaven and there is no rain. Or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray. And seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now the question becomes, as you study this text then, who are the my people that are mentioned in verses 13 and 14? That's what we really need to have a keen understanding of. Who are the my people here? And I want you to go back near the beginning of chapter 6. Turn back just a page to chapter 6 in, in verse 5. And then you'll also see in verse 6, right at the end of both of those verses you will see the answer to that question. It says, My people, Israel. 
Verse 6, right at the end of that verse, my people, Israel. And we also see throughout chapter 6, this phrase where Solomon is speaking and he says, your people, Israel. Just notice, just let your eyes follow along as we go through the chapter. Chapter 6, verse 21, he mentions your people, Israel. Chapter 6, verse 24, your people, Israel. Verse 25, your people, Israel. Verse 27, your people, Israel. And on, verse 29, verse 32, verse 33, your people, Israel. And so when God says, my people, in verses 5 and 6, and in our text that we've looked at in chapter 7, verses 12 through 14, when He says, my people, He is obviously talking about, He's clearly referring to the Jewish people in the ancient nation of Israel. David had been their king, and now Solomon is their king. He's referring to that nation state that we could call it of Jewish people there in that kingdom. And I want to say something next that uh, could be easily, if you don't listen very carefully to what I'm about to say, you might misunderstand what I'm about to say, but this is, this is true to the scripture, I believe. God is not in a covenant relationship with the United States of America or any other nation state on earth at the present time. And that would include the nation of Israel, the, the nation state of Israel, the modern nation state of Israel. There are still some promises that are made to the Jewish people as descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that are yet to be fulfilled in Scripture, and they will be fulfilled. But the current nation state of Israel is a place of protection for those Jewish people in the, in the land of Israel today where they will not be exterminated. You can follow the history of the 20th century and see what happened and see how they migrated there uh, in mass to that place. And it's a place where they're being preserved by God, I think, in that state. But the state itself, the nation state itself, the modern nation state of Israel is not in a covenant relationship with God. Now, all of God's answer to Solomon in verse 12, if you just look at verse 12 uh, in chapter 7, all of that is not applicable to the United States either. He says, as part of that, he says, I have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. Well, we don't have houses of sacrifice now. We don't sacrifice animals when we come to God's house today. And the reason we don't is because the supreme sacrifice, the Lord Jesus Christ, brought all of that to an end. When He went to Calvary, He shed His blood once and for all for the sins of all who would come to Him for salvation. And the sacrificial system came to an end. Part of what happened when Jesus died is that the veil of the temple was rent from top to bottom. And just a few years later, in the nation of Israel, the sacrifice ceased. And so there's no more need uh, for, for that. But at this time, the reference is there in verse 12. There's nothing like that taking place, uh, certainly not in relationship to the United States. And so what we see here and what we understand is that this text does not apply to us 
in the United States in exactly the same way that it did to Israel at that time. We have to be very honest as we do Bible study and admit that that's the truth. There is, it's not a direct correlation of how it applies to us in the way that it applied to Israel. And so the question becomes now, how does it apply to believers today in the United States of America? People like us who are waking up to the fact that we are in real peril as a nation. And there's a sense within us that we need to, to be more in prayer than ever before. How does, this, how does this text apply? And what I want to do this morning in the remainder of the message is I want to give you six answers to that question of how this applies to us today. And what I'm about to preach can be applied to any portion of the Bible. Anywhere in the Bible these things are true, but it, it makes what we've just read in Second Chronicles 7.14 uh, apply to us. And so here's what I want to say. First of all, it applies to us because it was placed in the Bible for us. And folks, everything that's in the Bible was placed there for us. It's for us. Look at these verses that I have here. 1 Corinthians 10, 11. And uh, here is where there's been a description just prior to this in the text of some things that had happened to Israel. And it says then in verse 11, 1 Corinthians 10, 11, Now all these things happened to them as examples and they were written for our admonition. That word just means instruction or warning. It's written to get our attention is another way to define that word uh, admonition. And so these things were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. And so when we read something that has happened in ancient Israel, it applies to us because it was written for us to be an example to us. Uh, Romans 15 verse 4 says, For whatever things were written before were written for our learning that we through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. And that hope is, of course, in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so everything in the Bible is ultimately about Jesus Christ. And so all the things that are written even in the Old Testament, the only scriptures that were available then were the Old Testament scriptures. Those were written so that we would be able to learn from it and apply it in our lives. The second thing is this. It reveals God's character to us. Uh, there are principles here about God that we see in Second Chronicles 7.14. For us to learn about God's nature and His character. And by the way, all of the Bible is like that. You know what your Bible is ultimately about? This is so elementary. It's about God. <laughs> Where do we go to find out about God? We go to the Bible. Don't try to come up with your own imaginations and your own understanding. That's what so much of what's going on in our society today. People have made a God out of a God that doesn't exist out of their own minds and own hearts. Uh, where do we find out about God? We go to this book. We open this book. We read this book. We meditate on this book. And God teaches us about Himself. He teaches us how we can be right with Him. And the only way that any of us could ever be right with Him is through His Son, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
But here in, in verse 14 of 2 Chronicles 7, we, we learn about our God, that He hears our prayers, and that He is a God who is merciful and will forgive. That's a wonderful thing to know about God. He, he, he is a merciful God. Now, I want us to turn, take your Bible and turn to Psalm 103. And I want to read, this is, this is a great psalm, one of my very favorite psalms, because it tells us about the great mercy and the loving kindness of our God. And we need to always remember that He is a God of wrath, a God of judgment. That's part of His nature. We need to understand that as well. But here, in a beautiful way, it describes His mercy. Starting verse 1, it says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. And what are those benefits? He, he describes them starting in verse 3. Who forgives all your iniquities. Who heals all your diseases. Who redeems your life from destruction. Who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies. Who satisfies your mouth with good things, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord executes righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known His ways to Moses, His acts to the children of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. Don't you love this? He will not always strive with us, nor will He keep His anger forever. The passage that Carrie read a few minutes ago, we didn't plan it this way, it just worked out today this way. That was the question that was being asked. Will your, will your mercies never show up again? And here it tells us that he won't keep his anger forever. I love verse 10. He says, he has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. And I think we can all say a loud amen to that. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is His mercy toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, that is from vanishing point to vanishing point, He has removed our transgressions from us. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear Him. For He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. And as for man, his days are like grass, as a flower of the field, so he flourishes. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place remembers it no more. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to such as keep his covenant, and to those who remember his commandments to do them. And we'll stop right there. But folks, that's where we, we go to God's Word to learn about His character. The third thing is this, is that He does not change. Uh, what we learn about God, whatever we learn about God, anywhere that we look in Scripture, it's the same forever. It never changes. God does not change. Malachi 3.6, He says, For I am the Lord, I do not change. Therefore, you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. In other words, because God is a merciful God. 
In James chapter 1, verse 17, it says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. The fourth thing is this. All Scripture is ultimately about Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Look at John five thirty-nine. Jesus speaking here. And He says, You search the Scriptures... For in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. He's talking to a group of Jews here that were seeking to kill him, actually. And he tells them, he says, you're, you're looking for eternal life, and you search the Scriptures, but what you're missing is that all of these Scriptures are about me. They testify of me. And Jesus said the same thing to his own disciples, or to some of his own disciples on the road to Emmaus. Luke twenty four forty four. he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. Jesus says, the Old Testament is about me. And the fifth thing is this, he too is unchanging. Of course he is, he's God. Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And then finally this, the sixth thing and the last thing. We as New Testament believers are God's people today. First Peter 2 verses 9 and 10. It says, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And then in verse 10, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. And there he is talking about New Testament believers, Jews and Gentiles, that are combined in one body as the people of God. And so here's this great truth. When God says, my people today, when God says, my people He's talking about us. Isn't that a marvelous truth? So let me just run over these again, just real quick. These verses do apply to us. Second Chronicles seven fourteen does apply to us. And, and all of the Scripture applies to us. All Scriptures do because they were recorded and placed in the Bible for us. They reveal the nature and character of God to us. God does not change. They reveal Jesus Christ to us and He does not change. And we are the people of God today. So there is something from this verse for us to glean. And folks, you can open your Bible to any point, any point in the Bible and place your finger down. And wherever your finger lands, it applies to your life and it applies to my life. You know, even something like the civil law of Israel. Sometimes people say, oh, that civil law was so harsh and so... Difficult, and they usually quote the verse where it says, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. They'll try to say something like, that's not the God of the New Testament. Can I tell you something? Oh, yes, it is. You know what that means when it says an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth? The problem was is that, they, that many people were assigning punishments for things that were far beyond what it would, would have called for. And so in the law of Moses, the law of God, they were restri- restricting the amount of punishment. And we can make a distinction in those things. And uh, 
what we ought to be able to do is to say with the psalmist, two other verses here, we ought to be able to say, oh, how I love your law. And in Psalm 119, verse 165, great peace have those who love your law. Speaking there of of the the law of God in, in the sense of being the entire word of God. And nothing causes them to stumble. And so, folks, that's why, and I'll wrap it up with this this morning. That's why as we study God's word, even in the Old Testament, even as we study through a book like Genesis, that's why we don't skip over the hard parts. Some of you men that are here this morning, you were in a, a meeting one time where somebody looked me dead in the eye in a, in a meeting. We were called in. We were called into a meeting by this church member years ago. And he said, Brother Paul, he said, can't we just skip over the hard parts? <laughs> he said, there's so many good things in the Bible. For God so loved the world and all of that. Can't we just skip over the hard parts? And I looked around at some of the others that were there and I just... I saw they weren't laughing. They knew he was serious. But folks, we can't skip over the hard parts because everywhere our finger lands in the Bible, there's something there for us. And there's something here in Second Chronicles 7, 12 through 14 that is for us today as God's people today. It's not, it's not just exactly like it was for Israel, but there's something to be gleaned from these verses and you'll have to wait till next Sunday for us to dig into that and find out what it is. Let's, let's bow in just a moment of prayer. God's Word is so wonderful. It was planned, every word of God's Word was planned to be a part of it from eternity past. And it's for us today. It's, it's, been, it's been true for every generation. And it's true for us today. And there's something about this call that's here in... 2 Chronicles seven fourteen to the people of God to turn to Him and to get right with Him and to begin to take seriously the matter of prayer. The missing note in the modern church primarily is prayer. People don't pray. We don't pray like we should. We've got time for other things. There seems to be so little time for prayer. And we can sacrifice and go and do and Make all kinds of sacrifices for other things, but there's no, no sacrifice in our lives to give us more time to pray. Well, that's what the elders are calling on us to do. is it, to see the urgency of this hour. God is under no compulsion whatsoever to answer our prayers. We're, we're crying out to Him that He would intervene and turn this nation back to Him. But God's under no compulsion to do that. But I think it is compulsory for us to understand the seriousness of the time and to fall on our face and to seek God. And as Steve Lawson said in that great quote, get right with God ourselves. First and foremost, deal with God about our own sin. And then cry out to Him for His mercy for our nation. And Father, I pray that uh, You'd help us to do that. There's no vote on this as a church. We just, uh, it's, it's a call issued by our elders. But Lord, help us. Help us to see the urgency of it. And let us begin to, to be a people of prayer. And Lord, I do pray if there's anyone here who has not found the eternal hope 
of Jesus Christ, that they might turn to him today for salvation. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.